Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ronit Malka, and I'm joined today by Dr. Jeffrey Texera, facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon, to talk about facial injectables and fillers. Welcome back, Dr. Texera. Thanks so much for having me on again. Um, like I said before, I think podcasts are a great tool for learning, and I really hope that the listeners find this topic useful and get some useful information from it. Thank you so much. So starting off, what is the typical presentation of somebody coming into your clinic seeking injectable treatments? So in my clinic, most patients that are coming in are coming in for cosmetic reasons, but it's important to remember that fillers can also be used for non-cosmetic patients, such as cleft lip patients, cleft nose patients, as well as patients with HIV with a history of lipoatrophy. But predominantly, I'm looking at patients that have wrinkles or frown lines that they don't like, both static and dynamic, and they want those treated with what they classically call Botox. They'll also come in saying, you know, my face is just not as full as it used to be, or I have these things near the corner of my mouth that are driving me crazy, what we classically call jowls. As was mentioned by Dr. Homan in his great presentation under the facial paralysis, Botox can also be used for facial paralysis as well as fillers. So if you're interested in that, I definitely recommend that you check out his podcast. And lastly, they can be used for scars, particularly depressed scars. Even though, as we mentioned in the facial resurfacing, lasers have really become the go-to for scar treatment. And again, kind of briefly reviewing the pathophysiology behind facial fillers and ejectables, what exactly are these made of and what are they doing once they're injected into the skin? Yeah, so again, I'd like to briefly just talk about the layers of the skin because I think that's important when you're injecting fillers to know exactly which level that you're going to be at. So again, the skin has three layers, the epidermis, dermis, and hypodermis. The epidermis is the top layer of skin and consists of five layers called the corneum, lucidum, granulosum, spinosum, and basale. And it's important, again, to remember that the lucidum layer is only found on thick skin, such as palms and soles. The dermis is predominantly composed of fibroblasts where collagen and elastin is made, and it consists of a papillary and a reticular layer. The papillary layer is composed of loose connective tissue and small blood vessels as well as some nerve endings, and the reticular layer is denser, has bigger blood vessels, and this is where you're going to find the hair follicles and sebaceous glands. Beyond that is the hypodermis, and unlike lasers where we normally weren't treating in the hypodermis, the hypodermis consisting of fat and fibrous tissue is commonly treated with injectables. When we talk about injectables, we're really talking about two different types of products, products that are chemodenervation in nature, and then actual fillers. Chemodenervation, the way that these products work, is basically they cleave various proteins in the snare complex, which blocks the release of acetylcholine at the presynaptic junction. Classically, we think of Botox or botulinum toxin. There are different serotypes, including botulinum A and E, and these are involved with the SNAP25 cleavage, botulinum B, D, and F, which is a VAMP cleavage, and botulinum C which is a syntax cleavage. When we talk about fillers, fillers work in three ways. They provide dermal support, provide volumization, and some of them actually stimulate collagen and elastin production. Fillers can be injected dermally, subdermally, or subperiosteal, depending on what your treatment goal is. And fillers really come in a couple different flavors. We talk about autologous fillers, such as fat, 
This is usually harvested from the abdomen and can be used for lip or malar cheek augmentation. Biologic fillers such as collagen, those have really fallen out of favor, human or bovine in nature, and the reason is that the synthetics have become really good. One important point to remember with any type of collagen product is that you require pre-testing on the patient prior to actually using the product to avoid a hypersensitivity reaction. I'd also like to mention here, which is becoming more popular, platelet-rich plasma and platelet-rich fibrin. Even though these are not classically a filler, they're basically used from the patient's blood, spun down, and then the PRP or the PRF is injected into certain areas to stimulate collagen and elastin. Synthetic fillers are the most commonly used today. The most common ones are calcium hydroxyapatite, brand name for this product is Radius, and this can be injected in the deep dermis. And what it does is it induces a fibrous ingrowth, and there are some reports that it can actually stimulate collagen production. Currently, off-label FDA uses include for cellulite, and some providers are injecting it into the neck in a hyperdilute solution in the subdermal plane to improve neck laxity. Poly-L lactic acid, which is Sculptra, is injected into the deep dermal or subperiosteal, and this is one of the few products we have on the market that can actually stimulate collagen. It's particularly used for lipoatrophy, and as mentioned before, was originally approved for HIV lipoatrophy. One of the problems with Sculptra is it does require multiple treatments, and the results are not immediate. Polymethylmethacrylate, I'm going to mention it, but not used um, very often. It's a permanent filler, and for that reason, it's fallen out of favor. And then the big one on the market that we use a lot of is hyaluronic acid-based fillers. These are the most commonly used, and brand names include Restylane and Juvederm. Hyaluronic acid is naturally occurring in the body, and the way we use these products is they're a gel-like material that once injected into the body absorb water and can last anywhere from 6 to 18 months as the body naturally clears the product. What's great about the hyaluronic acid fillers is that they're reversible and they can be used in different layers. One other product I'd like to mention that is not predominantly used anymore is silicone. This is an off-label use and was actually previously banned. The way it works is liquid silicone droplets cause fibroblasts to deposit collagen capsule around the material, but they have been associated with granuloma formation and infection and therefore are not predominantly used. Great. And what are you looking for on history and on physical exam in these patients? So on physical exam, the first part we really talk about is the patient, what are their treatment goals, and then we move into a facial analysis. What we're looking for is to see how much photo damage they have, look at the level of rightids they have, and then we really want the patient to animate to assess musculature. Do they use their frontalis for eyebrow elevation when looking up? This might be a contraindication for Botox in the frontalis muscle, or do they have an asymmetric smile at rest? Most patients will have sublevel of asymmetry or some form of what we call hemifacial microsomia on one side, and it's important that you point this out prior to treatment. We also want to know if they have a history of any prior therapies. Some examples would be developing tolerance to prior chemodenervation agents, or have they had a reaction to a previous injection? I definitely want to know if they've ever had a history of a previous vascular occlusion, and when we're talking about any type of filler product, we also want to know if they've had dental work or dental infections in the past two weeks, which may increase the risk of having an infection from the filler. Lastly, 
And it might sound counterintuitive, but if the patient has a big event coming up, I normally will tell them not to get their Botox or filler treatment, as bruising and swelling are very common and sometimes can last up to two weeks. All right. And what is your typical workup for patients presenting for injectables? Are there any big contraindications you're looking for? So the workup, again, like we talked about, is basically getting an idea of what the patient is looking for and understanding if you can actually achieve that goal. Photo documentation is very important. Many times patients will say, well, I don't notice a difference. But when you show their before and afters, they're like, oh, I do see a difference. Again, it's important to remember if you're going to use collagen that you must pretreat before. Like you mentioned, you have to assess for contraindications. And the big ones that I like to talk about are Botox in pregnant patients or patients who are breastfeeding. And then again, fillers in patients with recent dental procedures or infections in the past two weeks. Those are the really big ones. The other one we talk about is if a patient is interested in having some form of facial resurfacing procedure, we normally want them to have that done and then we'll do their injection, say, four weeks later. Patient counseling on risks and benefits is very important. With chemodenervation, we talk about the risks of ptosis, reaction, bruising, and undertreatment as well as asymmetries that can happen. And the same for fillers. The big ones we worry about are vascular occlusion or blindness. Most of the times when I first see these patients, we actually do not treat at the first appointment. And the reason is we also talk about pretreatment. Pretreatment in these patients includes stopping all NSAIDs or blood thinners if possible, as well as supplements such as fish oil, ginkgo biloba, ginseng, ginger, turmeric, all that can thin the blood and increase bruising. And I tell patients to stop these seven to 10 days before treatment. I also like for patients to start Arnica Montana capsules three days before treatment, which can help with bruising. We advise patients to avoid alcohol 48 hours prior to injection and 24 hours afterwards. Lastly, patients with a history of HSV infection should start valcyclovir one day before lip augmentation in order to reduce the risk of reactivation, and many patients benefit from taking an antihistamine on the day of procedure as it reduces the risk of swelling. Great. So now that we've covered patient presentation and workup and some of the relevant pathophysiology, now we'll move on to treatment. When considering injectables, can you outline some of the different treatment options for both fillers and chemodenervation and how each one works and which factors you would take into consideration when choosing a modality? Yeah, this is a great question, and it's really important. You don't want to use, say, a Vicross product such as Voluma in the lips. Not only is it not FDA approved, it's just not going to look good. And in the United States, we're actually limited. So Europe and Canada have much more filler options than we do. But if we look at chemodenervation, there are seven varieties of botulinum toxin, like we talked about, A through G. It's important to remember that cosmetic Botox, such as brand names Botox, Dysport, Xeomin, are all botulinum toxin type A. The difference is actually in the accessory protein attached to the botulinum molecule. So with Xeomin, it has no accessory protein, so its size is about 150 kilodaltons, while Botox has the most accessory protein and is the largest at 900 kilodaltons. Dysport can actually vary, but is roughly around 800 kilodaltons. The choice of toxin that you want to use is normally provider preference, but you will have patients who prefer one over the other. 
The other consideration is that if a patient is a Botox non-responder, and by that I mean brand name Botox, or has developed tolerance, then you can normally switch to Dyspor or Xeomin, and they will normally respond to those treatments. What we're trying to do with the botulinum toxin, in effect, is we are trying to prevent the muscles from contracting in order to prevent the sequelae of aging, such as facial rhytids. The way I explain this to patients is that your skin is like a brand new bed sheet and the muscles we are targeting are the mattress. When the sheet is new and young, you can crinkle it up, but when you stretch it back out, it lays flat. With time, though, the sheet does not lay completely flat. That is what is happening with the skin. The muscles are constantly pulling on the skin, and with time and photoaging, the skin loses elastin and collagen, and deep righted start to develop, such as the classic Levens in the glabella or the crow's feet around the eyes. With fillers, the choice of the product I use really depends on what I'm trying to treat, as well as sometimes patient preference and many times cost. Hyaluronic acid fillers have become the workforce of injectables with the most common brands being Juvederm or Restylane. Juvederm is interesting in that it has a Vicross and Hylocross technology. Vicross include Voluma, Velour, Fabella, and Hylocross include Juvederm Ultra as well as Ultra Plus. If I am trying to restore volume to the mid-face, I'll go for a thicker product with a greater G-prime such as Voluma or Velour. The way I like to think of the G-prime is if you made a pyramid out of the product, products with higher G-prime will keep their shape and therefore provide more support. On the other hand, if I want fuller lips, I'll use Juvederm, which is a high lacrosse product and absorbs more water. Therefore, not as much support, but significant volume. Sculpture is a great product for patients who have significant fat atrophy of the face, unlike hyaluronic acid products, will stimulate collagen and elastin production. The downside to this product, as mentioned before, is that the results are not immediate. Radius, which is a calcium hydroxyapatite, is also commonly used for jaw contouring and again can stimulate some collagen. The problem with Radius is unlike hyaluronic acid, it's not reversible. Great. And what are the surgeon's main targets when giving patients fillers or injectables? So that's what I really like about using chemodermabrasion or fillers is that it's a very pretty precise science. The muscle you're injecting is the muscle you're going to deactivate. And with fillers, where you're putting it is you're going to see some pretty immediate results, especially if you're using hyaluronic acid-based products. So with chemodenervation, Classically, the muscles we inject, to give some examples, include the corrugator and the procerus. Here, we're targeting the glabellar lines. It's important to remember when injecting the corrugator that the injector will remember that the medial belly of the muscle is actually pretty deep, while the lateral belly is superficial and attaches to the skin. So the best way to know where to inject is to have the patient frown and you can see the muscle belly contracting and you can just pinch it between your fingers and inject the muscle directly. We also inject mentalis for dimpled chins. The frontalis is a commonly injected muscle for forehead lines, orbicularis oculi for what we call the crow's feet. Interesting enough, you can also get a little bit of a brow lift. Levator labii superioris for what we classically call the gummy smile. Depressor anguli oris, or the DAO, can also be injected to give a smile a little more cephalad position, 
But it's important here not to go too medial or you will also get the depressor labia inferioris, which will cause an asymmetric smile. Platysmal bands can also be injected as well as synkinetic muscles. With fillers, what we're trying to do is provide dermal support and volumization. So wrinkles can actually be injected directly into the dermis to smooth them out, such as nasolabial folds. The mid-face can be volumized with boluses of 0.1 to 0.2 cc's along the zygoma and the zygomatic arch. A common one we see as patients get older is hollowing in the temporal area, so the temporalis fossa can be augmented, as well as jaw contouring. The biggest one you see based on Instagram and the stars is lip augmentation, and that has become quite popular, as well as other regions of lipoatrophy, such as the lower face. Great. And what is the expected duration of the results of these different treatments? And kind of as a follow-up question, what are some indications for multiple or repeated treatments? This is a great question, and it's probably the number one question patients will ask you. Normally, they don't care about complications. What they want to know is how long will it last. And it really depends on what type of product you're using. Classically, we say between 6 and 18 months. Hyaluronic acid-based products that are hylocrost in nature, such as Juvederm, will normally last about 8 months, while Vicross products such as Voluma can last anywhere up to about 18 months. And that's the same for calcium hydroxy appetite. Obviously, permanent fillers such as polymethyl methacrylate and fat are permanent normally in nature. However, autologous fat can have virial resorption rates. And one of the reasons a lot of people don't like to use it is that it's very unpredictable. Sculptra, on the other hand, we normally like to say that whatever collagen or elastin you build, that will normally last quite a bit. But again, since you know the effects are not immediate, I tell patients they're not going to see the benefit from their treatment for about 12 months. With chemo denervation, no matter what product you're using, either Botox, Dysport, or Xeomin, they normally take about one to two weeks to reach maximal effects and last anywhere from three to four months. There is the risk of develop antibody tolerance, but if this tolerance develops, then you can normally switch to a different product. It's important to note here, though, that in cosmetic treatments, we're normally not using doses greater than 100 units, so tolerance is less likely as we think it might be related to the number of units you're getting in one treatment. You can have longer duration effect with lower doses over time, so some patients prefer to come in more often and not get full treatment doses. And there is some evidence that the different serotypes may have different duration of effects. Some reports report that Dysport might have a little bit longer duration than, say, Botox and Xeomin, as the actual toxin concentration is greater per treatment area. Are there any complications that you counsel patients about before using injectables? Absolutely. It's really important to counsel patients because especially with fillers, they're not benign and they can have some pretty significant complications. The big one we really are concerned about always is vascular occlusion. And this could be from compression or actually true embolization into the vessel. That can lead to tissue necrosis and in pretty rare instances can actually even lead to blindness. Some providers will counsel patients on filler migration. I think that's less likely to happen, especially if you're putting the filler in the appropriate layer of the skin. 
Granuloma formation is very unlikely with hyaluronic acid-based products, but can happen with Sculptra, as well as some of the more off-label products such as silicone. Patients can have a hypersensitivity to a reaction um, to the filler, especially with, say, the Vicross products. What's interesting is I have had patients have a reaction to the filler even months after being treated, and it might be something insidious like a bug bite. Normally, those patients will respond to a steroid burst. Bruising and infection can also happen. Again, infection is more common if a patient has a history of recent dental work. And with chemo denervation, the most complication is bruising, but you always have to worry about ptosis as a result of toxin infiltrating the levator muscle of the upper eyelid. And I always counsel patients on this. And what do facial plastic surgeons usually do to prevent or treat these complications? This is a great question. Most of the times you can avoid some of these complications by just knowing your anatomy, knowing where you're injecting, and knowing exactly which plane you're putting the filler in. With the Botox, Botox works like we talked about the presynaptic junction, so you really want to be injecting the muscle. But the complication we really worry are vascular occlusion with fillers, and any injector needs to be prepared to deal with this complication as it is a true emergency. Ways to reduce the risk, as we mentioned before, is know exactly where you are and the critical vessels in that area. I always aspirate when I am placing a bolus of filler to ensure that I'm not in a blood vessel. And I'm always looking for signs of occlusion, including significant immediate pain and blanching of the skin. If I ever encounter this, I always would stop immediately injection and if it's a hyaluronic acid-based filler, and I'm pretty confident that I might have an occlusion, I'll immediately begin to flood the area with hyaluronidase. It's important to remember that several hundred units may be needed. If you have a vascular occlusion, it's also not a bad idea to have the patient take an aspirin. You could try some nitroglycerin paste and warm compresses. But again, you really want to flood the area first with hyaluronidase in order to be able to start breaking up that hyaluronic acid. In cases of delayed necrosis, wound care is paramount. Sculpture does have a history of causing some small granuloma type deposits. These have become less common with a different hydration protocol, as well as having the patient massage where you inject five times per day for five minutes for five days. Triamcinolone injections can be used for irregular lumps or bumps, However, most hyaluronic acid fillers can be easily massaged into surrounding tissue in the first two weeks. Lastly, ptosis with chemodermination is best prevented with proper placement of the toxin into the muscle belly. However, it can happen to even the most experienced injectors. In these situations, apiclonidine can be prescribed, which stimulates Mueller's muscle to contract to cause one to two millimeters of eyelid opening. The good news is that ptosis will normally resolve by six weeks instead of the typical three to four months that botulinum toxin will normally last. And what kind of follow-up do you usually schedule for these patients post-treatment? I always like to see these patients back, especially my Botox patients. I want to see them back at the two-week mark, especially if it's their first time having an injection. The reason is you might have a patient that's really happy with their results, but they're spocking with their eyebrows, and that's pretty easy to treat. Or they might have one specific little ridded that's still present, and with one or two units, you can really knock it out and give them the great result that they're looking for. 
The same is true with fillers. Fillers take about two weeks to settle out. So I normally like to see first-time filler injection patients at two weeks just to make sure everything is looking okay. And I always tell patients that Botox will start normally working at three days, but the reason we wait two weeks is because, again, like we mentioned, some patients, it can take up to two weeks. So normally the two-week mark is where I'll see them back. Most Botox patients will come every three to four months for retreatment, and most filler patients will come in probably one to two times per year for treatment. Great. Thank you so much. Finally, as a short summary, when we talk about facial injectables and fillers, we're mainly referring to chemodenervation agents such as botulinum toxin derivatives, which cleave various proteins in the snare complex to prevent acetylcholine release at the presynaptic junction, and bulking agents, which provide dermal support and promote collagen and elastin production and can be autologous, biologic, or synthetic. These are used to reverse volume loss within the face, for instance, with lipoatrophy or scarring, facial deformity, facial paralysis, and to minimize wrinkling, and notably are able to treat both static and dynamic wrinkles. When assessing a patient in clinic, it is important to assess dynamic facial movements and to elicit any history of prior therapy or facial injectable or filler treatment, history of vascular occlusions or recent dental work, in addition to typical static facial analysis and photo documentation. Pretreatments such as stopping blood thinners to include supplements and aspirin, as well as HSV prophylaxis and antihistamine use day of treatment to prevent swelling are commonly used. When using chemodenervation agents, agent selection is often patient and provider preference driven, but another factor in agent selection is whether the patient has developed tolerance to a particular subtype through antibody production. The main targets for chemodenervation agents are the corrugator supercilii and proceris for globular lines, the mentalis for a dimpled or peau d'orange chin, the frontalis for forehead lines, the orbicularis oculi for crow's feet, the levator labii superioris for a gummy smile, the DAO, and platysmal banding and any synkinetic muscle and facial paralysis. Fillers are often chosen based on location of injection, patient preference, and cost, with hyaluronic acid currently the most commonly used. Fillers are typically aimed at the nasolabial folds or other deep wrinkles, along the zygoma for mid-face volumization, the temporalis fossa for hollowing, or along the jaw or lip for contouring, augmentation, or lipoatrophy. Complications from filler agents include bruising, filler migration, granuloma formation, or hypersensitivity reactions, though a more serious filler-related complication is vascular occlusion that can lead to tissue necrosis or blindness. Vascular occlusion risk can be reduced with careful injectable placement, aspiration before injection, and careful monitoring for blanching or pain, and hyaluronidase can be used to reverse occlusion with hyaluronic acid. Other treatments can include aspirin, administration, and warm compress application. Chemodenervation commonly causes minimal bruising, though other complications can include unintended ptosis. Ptosis can be treated with topical apiclonidine to stimulate Mueller's muscle and reverse the levator infiltration of the chemodenervation agent. Duration of effect of injectables varies, with most chemodenervation agents lasting for approximately 3 to 4 months and fillers lasting anywhere from 6 to 18 months to lasting permanently, depending on the product used. 
Dr. Tixera, is there anything you wanted to add? I think that was a great summary. I mean, I really enjoy injecting fillers. They bring a lot of joy to patients. And unlike surgery, the results are normally immediate. The things I would really, you know, want to touch upon again are that you have to know your anatomy. You have to know the different layers and planes that you're in. You don't just want to be putting boluses in areas that you're not sure of. And then the thing I would really want to reiterate is that any provider that is doing any type of hyaluronic acid-based injections really needs to be prepared to deal with a vascular occlusion. And that includes having hyaluronidase at their disposal immediately. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Before we go, we'll finish up with a few questions. Per usual, I'll ask the question, pause for a few seconds to give you time to think of the answer or pause the episode, and then I'll give the answer. To start, how do chemodenervation agents work? And what is the specific mechanism of action of Botox? Chemodenervation agents work broadly to prevent presynaptic acetylcholine release at the neuromuscular junction by interfering with various proteins within the snare complex, a protein complex that enables fusion of acetylcholine-containing vesicles to the presynaptic membrane for release. Botox specifically cleaves SNAP25, one of the protein subunits of SNARE. What are some synthetic facial fillers used? See if you can name at least two. Examples of synthetic facial fillers include calcium hydroxyapatite, polylactic acid, polymethyl methacrylate, and hyaluronic acid. Silicone is beginning to be used off-label for facial fillers as well, in spite of a previous ban on its use. And lastly, how does tolerance to chemodenervation agents develop? With repeated exposure, patients can develop neutralizing antibodies to a particular chemodenervating agent, creating tolerance and necessitating the use of a new agent for desired effect. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.